morning. So good to be with you and so good to worship together. Thank you for making worship a priority here um, on a Sunday morning. And, uh, you know, many people don't realize this, but uh, as pastors, we come to serve, but we also come to be part of our family. This is our family. We're here with you this morning, and uh, you bless us by your worship and by your care and by your love for us and one another. And uh, this is a, a good thing that God has ordained his church, his people to gather Sunday by Sunday. So we're, you know, we're on a great adventure. We're in the book of Luke and, and we're, we're, we're marching our way toward Easter here, which is not far off now. It's coming fast. You know, Easter always comes fast. It seems like Christmas and then boom, here comes Easter. And, and we're getting prepared for that. We've uh, been on a community-wide, church-wide fast. Many of you have participated in that. I hope you are doing that. I've heard many people finding it a blessing. Uh, I have chosen a couple things in my life. One of them is to stop reading the sports page on the internet, and that's uh, bothering me a little bit. Um, but I'm finding I'm reading more about God and focusing more on his word, and it has been good for me. I might have to continue this, you know, past uh, this little season. We'll see. And, uh, you know, Luke talks to us a lot about him building his kingdom, drawing people to himself, gathering people. It says in 1910 of Luke that he came to seek and save those who are lost. And we have a lot of people coming to Jesus these days. And we are so thrilled by that. In fact, we have a baptism service coming up uh, March 26th in a couple of weeks. And several of you have already indicated you'd like to be baptized. If you are interested in being baptized, please let us know. This will be over 20 people baptized in the last quarter in our church. And that is a remarkable thing. All these people are coming to faith in Christ and choosing to be baptized. And of course, Easter is out there, and uh, we're going to have two services on Easter, and we're excited to be able to do that and offer one at 9 o'clock and 11. So you have to kind of adjust your schedule for that. Sunday, we'll have a fellowship hour at 10 o'clock in between. Should be um, a great, great Sunday. So as Jesus gathers his people, he gives to us the principles of the kingdom. You know, we live in America. It's great to be Americans. We should be good citizens in this country and do everything we can to be salt and light here. But above that, we are Christians of a different kingdom called to live eternally as his people forever and ever. And we are to reflect the values of his kingdom. And this morning, we are going to talk about what uh, he gives to us in chapter 16. And his subject is riches. It's a, it's a, little, it's a little line that kind of traces its way all the way through this chapter. You know, and when we teach here, you might notice this about us, we teach through books of the Bible. We just kind of try to teach verse by verse so that we don't cheat. We don't pick our favorites, right? Things that are easy to talk about, things that we like to talk about. We teach through the whole book, and so whether it's judgment, like we had some of those, we're just going to talk about it. This is what Jesus said. If you don't like it, take it up with him. Now today we're going to talk about money. You don't like that? Take it up with him. He's the one that gave us these words. So we're just, just teach it through and then trust that God, because he's good to us. He cares about us, right? He's not trying to make us miserable. He gives us his word to make us blessed as his people, to hear and to respond uh, as we teach. So we're in Luke 16, and we're talking about money today. It reminded me of a game we used to play in our childhood. I probably haven't played this game for 20 or 30 years. But the game of life, maybe some of you have played this silly game. 
I, I liked it because it had a big spinner that you'd spin, and it was like 10 numbers it could land on. This is kind of the engineer in me. He's just, you know. But you got, to, you got a little, little plastic car at the beginning, and you get to travel along life, and you pick a career, and you get to decide whether you're going to go to college or not. And then you get married, and you begin to accumulate money. And if you land on the right squares, you get lots of, lots of kids and, 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 and children. And you put each child as a little peg, and pretty soon your car fills up. Sometimes you need a second car to handle all the kids. But at the end of the game, you, get, you land in millionaire acres. And you sell everything, including your kids and family, to collect cash. <laughs> and I think, you know, sometimes I think this is the way Americans look at life. Like, it's who dies with the most money wins, you know. So we're going to look at what Jesus said about this, right? And to have an eternal perspective uh, with our money. That was a fun game. And I loved the greed in it, you know. Like, oh, this feels so good. <laughs> But how we view our wealth and how we handle our riches have profound effect, not only in our life now, but also uh, for all eternity. So I want to look at three, three points here this morning. Um, first couple are really the world's pursuits. World pursuit part one, world pursuit part two, and then finally um, God's perspective on wealth at the end here. So, let me read. I'm gonna, I decide I'm going to read this whole thing bit by bit through the sermon because these words are so important. In fact, way more important than anything I say, right? Let's hear God's word uh, together. So he starts with a parable um, of, of a dishonest manager. And I'll read verses 1 to 7. It says this. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. Now look at this is interesting, isn't it? So here is this man. Um, he has a boss, and he's the business manager of his estate and his wealth. And this manager mishandles the money; he probably was losing money, and so he's going to get fired. Right? We've we've been in those shoes, some of us, along the way. It's a hard day. And he's worried about his financial future and his security. He says, there's no really other jobs that I want to do or that I can do. He probably was a little up there in age. So he comes up with this plan to find the master's debtors and offer them sort of a cut rate of what they owed the master. Hoping that these people that he had reduced their debt of would be kind to him when he no longer had his job. That's what he was hoping for, it says. 
Now, here's what's surprising about this, because he's clearly being dishonest, right? I mean, he's even called the dishonest manager, right? He's clearly being dishonest, but look what Jesus says, what this master says, kind of reflecting Jesus and God's heart. It says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. <laughs> this is stunning, actually, and kind of fun for those of us who study the scriptures. Like, okay, how can this make sense? But I want you to see, he is not, he is not commending him for his dishonesty. He is commending him because he was, his, he was handling his money to benefit his future. That's what he's doing. This is what he was being shrewd. He was figuring out a way to handle his money so that his future would be benefited. This man was pursuing future financial security and well-being, and Jesus said, you did that well. Then Jesus says this astounding thing. Look at this, second half, verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He's saying the worldly people are better at handling their money to build financial security as they perceive it here on earth than you believers you believers in God are at handling your money to build your financial security, which is rewards in heaven. They're better at building their security in earthly ways than you are at building your treasures in heaven by the way you live and spend your money. Isn't that amazing? So, Jesus says, now look it, listen to me. Let's not keep it this way. Let's understand the principles of money in the kingdom. How do we build a financial future as God's people? And then he takes this up in verses 9 through 12. Verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by the means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal Dwellings. In other words, bless people in a way and prepare them for their eternal reward. In other words, take up kingdom principles with your money, invest in the discipling of others, invest your resources in bringing people to Jesus, learn to be a minister that shares and uses their wealth to draw people to Christ. Be generous, in other words, with your money. Pastor Jared already mentioned giving a tithe at the front end of everything we make. Give to missions. Give to those in need. Be a blessing with your resources. We are meant to use our resources to advance the kingdom and to bring people to Christ and to help them grow in him. That builds up rewards and treasures in heaven. Now look it. That means we have to live a lifestyle that allows us to be generous. This is hard. This is the hard part of this statement. Because we all go, yeah! Well, but I got to do some things with my money that make that possible, right? I remember when we first got married, we were living in Seattle, downtown Seattle, and uh, we were so excited. We were just married, and we believed these principles. We talked them over. We were going to be people that gave and really be generous. 
And so we did, like right off the top, first paycheck we got, we gave a bunch more than 10%. And we were so excited. We were doing a little dance together like we gave. And then over the next two weeks, we ate at all the fancy restaurants in Seattle, too. And before the end of the month, about a week before the end of the month, we were out of money. We go, oh, I guess to give generously is going to cost us something. We might have to give up some of those fancy restaurants to do this, which we gladly did, by the way. But it was a bit of an adjustment to learn this. So Jesus says, look it, use your money for eternal purposes. Be generous. But he also then tells us in verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? He's telling us to be honest in the little things, right? To be honest in our business dealings, to be honest in our taxes this time of year, right? Not hiding income like we shouldn't hide, right? Pay off your debts. Don't carry large credit card sums. Let's get that taken care of, these little things. Be faithful in the little that you have. Be faithful. Be generous with what God has given you, even when your finances are small. And then he says, if you are faithful with those things, I will give you more to share with others. When you sow the seeds widely, it says in Corinthians, then I will give you more seed to sow. But all of this, Jesus summarizes it in verse 13, is an issue of worship. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He says, what is first in your heart? What is your passion? What is your chief pursuit? What's the organizing principle of your life? We all have one. We're made to be worshipers. We're made to put something at the center. Sometimes it's just ourselves. I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care what anybody tells me. But Jesus is raising the question here, is it God or is it money? And the use of your money and your checkbook, which very few people use anymore, but your phone accountant that you pull it up on your app will tell you where your heart is. What are you using your money for? You can do an evaluation of yourself, but let me tell you this. There is no greater joy than being generous with your money. I have seen so many of us over the years, many of you, with tears give generously to God's kingdom work and to see him advance his kingdom. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus was right when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Think so? It's an issue of worship. Where's your heart? Is it with money or is it with God? So that's the world's pursuit, part one. Now, there's a second pursuit that shows up um, as Jesus now turns and begins to talk about the Pharisees, the religious people. And uh, in verse 14, <clears throat> it says the Pharisees, and look at the first phrase said about them, the Pharisees 
who were lovers of money. (laughs) They worshipped money, not God. They pretended to worship God, but in their heart they worshipped money. They heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Because, see, you can imagine the Pharisees who were wealthy and had lots of money. They said, what is this poor man, like who doesn't even have a home, coming and teaching us about money? Who is this guy? So they ridiculed him, it says. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. In other words, their aim to justify themselves was to be esteemed and approved and accepted by people around them. That's what they were after. You want to justify yourselves before men. You want men to think well of you. You want men to think highly of you. And these Pharisees, they saw their money and the accoutrements that go with it, their homes, their nice dwell, dwellings, their nice dress, their positions in culture, they use those things as a way to impress people and to win their acceptance. These people have lost the money. They must be pretty good folks, right? Isn't that how us Americans think often? But they also were trying, the Pharisees, to be accepted by God by other externals particularly the keeping of the law. See, the Pharisees were famous for this. And um, they made their lists, right? Kept it meticulously and looked down on everybody else that didn't keep their lists like they did. This is what they did. But Jesus takes this on with them. And he says to them in verse 17, he says, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. In other words, if you're going to be law keepers, you got to keep the whole thing. You don't get just to pick and choose and have your favorites. If you're going to impress God and people by keeping the law, you got to keep the whole thing. That's what Jesus was saying. And by the way, you Pharisees, You stink at your own game. And he gives them just one highlight. Verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And the Pharisees were famous for divorcing their wives for any cause whatsoever. One of the famous ones is she cooked me a bad meal and I divorced her. That's how they thought. You want to keep the law, Pharisees? Keep the whole thing and you stink at it. He says, let me just give you one example. And that's what he does here. Because, jumping back up to verse 15, God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. And he says, Pharisees, you though who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. He doesn't look at the externals, our law-keeping, our wealth, the things that impress people. Well, people might be impressed by those things, but God is not. In fact, he says, your pride and your self-importance and your judgment, he says, he uses this word, strong word, are an abomination in the sight of God. 
your performance of people, the way you use your wealth to impress others, the way you are judges of others who don't keep your rules like you do, an abomination to God. See, God hates sin, and he hates sin because it does harm to his creation. When we judge one another, make each other feel small or criticized, it harms us. When we do evil, it's the fact that it says the Pharisees, you make slaves out of people when you give them your lists and insist that they keep them to be accepted. Now look, at all of us are inclined, I think, at times to... Uh, be proud and to be judgmental and to keep our list. I think, in fact, we all kind of subconsciously have our list, right, in our heads. That when we walk around, we, in our minds, judge people when they don't keep them, right? I, I cannot stand driving in Utah and the way we handle red lights here. Right? And, I mean, you just know it. Like, you better not, when the light turns green, you better not take off. Because there's going to be one or two, maybe three, coming still through that intersection. And so in my little mind, I'm going, can't you tell that's a red light? And I judge them. In fact, I almost feel like pulling out in front of them and get hit by them just to prove my point. <laughs> Don't do it, right? That's a wicked, that's a, that's a judgmental heart, Right? Until my time comes and I'm late for a meeting, and I know in Utah we can get away with this, I'm going through the red light. <laughs> See, that's hypocrisy, right? We all do this. But when we begin to see our hearts and the judgmental nature of them and what it is, the cross begins to become sweet to us. Because the Bible tells us none of us can keep the law. There's none righteous, no, not even one, Romans 3.10. And the Bible tells us in Galatians 3.24 that the law actually points us to Christ. We can't keep it. It's a schoolmaster that guides us to the Savior. So this is good. When we begin to feel the guilt of sin and convicted of our own hypocrisy, then we begin to look at the cross where we see God's justice and judgment and hatred of sin that Jesus had to die for us, but we also see his amazing love, that he was glad to die for us, to be forgiven, that when we turn in repentance and faith to him and trust him as our savior, we are set free. And we're given a brand new heart that begins to love him instead of the things of the world. And so, that's the world's pursuit, part two, is to win the praise of Men. And we're to turn to Jesus and go, we can't do this. It's not good for us or them. Now, <clears throat> finally we come to this story, this rather shocking story, that gives us God's perspective on wealth. <clears throat> and um, this is a hard story. And it's poignant in speaking to us who are Americans. Let's read it a little bit. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received many good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So there are two people in this story. There's a rich man. And there's a poor man. And the rich man feasted and lived a lavish life. And the poor man sat by the side of the road and begged with sores and ate crumbs off the rich man's table. And I want to ask you, which of those two people do you want to be in the story? I remember pulling up in Sugar House at an intersection there on 13th East. And I, I stopped at a stoplight, and there was a guy in a Maserati on my left, and there was a poor man begging on my right. And I thought, I'm right in the middle of this parable. Which of those two do you want to be? Americans? And both died, right? Both died, and Lazarus was taken to a place of comfort and blessing. And by the way, he was given a name. Isn't this interesting, the story? He was given a name. But the rich man, not given a name, was in a place of torment. Furthermore, it says, the rich man asked for relief from his torment. But Abraham said, there is a chasm fixed between you and the blessed, Lazarus, and there's no way across that chasm. This is frightening, right? Frightening. I mean, Jesus just flips everything we think about on its head and inverts it as we see it in our American culture. The rich man who had it good that we think are blessed ends up in Hades, a place of torment, and the poor man who we look at and sometimes even despise, and he's in a place of comfort and paradise. Everything gets inverted. Right, there's, there's this thing of inversion with God. You see it throughout all of Scripture. The last shall be first. Matthew 20, 16. Those who lose their life will find it. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And here, the poor man is in a place of blessing, and the rich man is in a place of torment. I mean, this is, 
the principal inversion that you see throughout all the scripture, Jesus led the way as he discipled people. He was the suffering servant who laid down his life. He humbled himself as king, creator, king, God, humbled himself to the death of a cross. I mean, the Jewish, that just blew, the, like, this can't be our Messiah. We're expecting King Jesus to rule, to lead governments. And no, he doesn't. He gets this little band of shady followers of 12 people that we despise, and they follow him. Today, 2.7 billion people follow Jesus, by the way. You think that might have worked? Side point. But Jesus conquered by dying. He humbled himself, it says in Philippians 2, so that he would be exalted. So if this story hits home with you, it sure does with me, it frightens me, frankly, we have to ask ourselves this question, I think. How do I become the poor man in this story, right? Isn't that what we want to be? Like, how do I get to be the poor man in this story? I don't want to be the rich man. <laughs> guy driving the Maserati doesn't care one little bit about God. We don't want to be that guy. I don't know if he was or not, but, but we don't want to be that guy. Nothing wrong with driving a Maserati too, but the issue is how do I become the poor man in this story? And Matthew 5.3 answers this question for us to a large degree. It said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've been blessed. Riches aren't bad. They're not evil. It's how we do what we do with them. But we want to be poor in spirit. We want to be broken over our sin and see the need of a savior. Like the tax collector who made a lot of money and a lot of it by devious means said in Luke 18, 13. We cover this text here in a couple weeks. It says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. To be broken of our sin and to see we've gone our own way and to see we've rebelled against God and to see that we've used our wealth for selfish means to make our life more fancy and more safe and more easy rather than giving and being generous. All of us too much are like that rich man. But God is seeking us and saving us through the person of Jesus. He's trying to get our attention. He's always trying to get our attention to turn away from our selfish ways. Children, have you ever done things um, that mom and dad told you not to do? <laughs> and then they do things to you to help you remind you that you did things that they didn't want you to do? Have you ever had this problem? As a child, I had this problem a lot. And uh, mom and dad had this chair at the, at the uh, counter that we all sat at to eat dinner, and we spun around on that thing. And it was the greatest thing. We had, me and my brother would spin around on that. We'd whip the counter and spin around on that thing. But then it would kind of, the back of it would drive up underneath the counter and rip a kind of a hole in the back of the chair. And so my dad said, don't, like, don't do that. 
don't spin around in those chairs. Guess what Kevin did? Spun around on the chairs, right? Kept spinning around on the chairs. You know what my dad finally did? Again and again, he told me, don't spin around the chair. Kevin's spinning around in the chair, not listening to mom and dad. He took the chair down, he was mad, and he wired it up underneath it so it couldn't spin. I was furious. My brother's spinning. Mom and dad could go back and forth. Kevin was stuck on purpose to point out, right, my dad's attempt to show me, like, this is wrong. And wrong is not good for you. And you've got a sinful heart, son, and it's put you in prison now because I got the wire thing wired down. See, that's what sin does to us. Puts us in prison. Harms us. And you need mercy and forgiveness. And that's not only true of the children in this room, it's true of all the adults, right? I've had so many adults saying, God has chased me down, and now I've committed a sin I can't get out of. <laughs> Spent my whole life getting out of sins. This one's got me. Now I'm in prison. So that we would turn to Jesus, to look to Jesus and live. That Jesus died and took our punishment. And that when we believe in him, God looks as us, as us, at us as if we had never, ever sinned. When we repent and turn from our ways and trust him as Savior, we are free. The chains come off. The clamps that hold the chair down come off. Now we're free because we've been given a new heart that wants to obey. And that new heart given to us by Jesus is one that says, I want to give and I want to be gracious. I want to be generous because God has been gracious and generous with me. That's the gospel. We've been forgiven. We've been treated kindly like our sins don't deserve. And now we love and we serve others. And that is called the good news. It's the best news that has ever been told to people on earth. Now look, I'll close with this. Band, you can come on up. How do we know this is true? Right? Because the sacrifice is pretty hard. Jesus says you've got to give it all away to come and follow me. You've got to be last to get first. You've got to surrender your sins and follow me. How do we know this is true? And so verse 27 answers that question. And he said, then I beg you, Father Lazarus, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that Lazarus may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Please, go warn my brothers, Lazarus. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, they have the Bible. Let them hear it. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them, rising from the dead, they will repent for sure. He said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear the Bible, neither will they be convinced if someone should go to them who's risen from the dead. Isn't that unbelievable? Right? Like, we don't need, not that these aren't a blessing, but we don't need these books of people that somehow experienced heaven and came back and told us about it. Jesus did that, by the way. (laughs) 
We don't need somebody that comes that has been risen from the dead to tell us Jesus did that, by the way. What we need is the word of God that tells us Jesus is Lord. Turn to him and give your life to him. This is the book, God's word, and he never lies. That when we hear it and respond, our hearts are changed. So the Bible calls faith. It's taking God at his word and acting upon it, regardless how we feel, because God promises a good result. That's faith. Take it at his word and just act upon it. Trust him. There's plenty of evidence to believe. The resurrection, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks, the testimony of many that we'll hear in the baptism service in a few weeks, the creation of this world that he made, there's lots of reasons to believe, but it's still an act of faith. It can't be proved through a science experiment. It's taking God at his word and believing it and acting upon it. So let's take a moment just before our God and we will hear his voice to us today and he always does Sunday by Sunday speak to us and I'm thankful for that. Speaks to me through the week as I study and I get the great privilege of sharing what he's spoken to me about during the week here on Sunday morning. If you have heard his voice this morning and you go, I believe, I believe the word of God, I believe that Jesus is Lord, I believe he died for my sins and you'd like to give your life to him this morning, I just want you to raise your hand. Anybody in this room? After you, you can put your hand down. Anybody else this morning? So I just want to give my life to Jesus. And he promises when you give your life to him, he will hold you forever, that you are his child, you're his blessed child, and he will care for you and take you to his presence forevermore. If that is your heart this morning, and if it's been your heart, even if you didn't have the courage to raise your hand, let's pray this little prayer. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I give my life to you. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you now that you make me your child. You are so good. Thank you that you love me. In Jesus' name, amen.